0: You have to give space for people to learn and and to make mistakes and fail fast and then learn fast and then move on to the next thing. And and we made so much progress so fast this year. And I, I think in some regards, it might well have been that I did leave.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Real Leaders Podcast, where today impacts tomorrow. Departure creates opportunity and leaders keep it real. That excerpt was from David Young, the CEO of Participate Learning, who shares with you the lessons learned from deciding to hand over the reins, the importance of becoming bilingual, and how his family values manifest in their company's culture and customers. Enjoy. And then with that, how about we get started here? Hello. Okay, I'll do a little introduction and ask you the first question and we'll go from there. Awesome. All right, here we go, Kev. Come on, Kev. We gotta bring the energy today. Ah. All right, here we go. Countdown in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of The Real Ears Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is David Young, the CEO of Participate. David, a pleasure having you back on the show today.
0: Thanks, Kevin. Great to see you again. Appreciate uh, you having us on and, and keeping us involved.
1: And for our our listeners out there who are devoted to the podcast, David was on episode 38 and David, you really shared about uh, the origin of Participate, you know, uh, be, having your family being education. Was this a model that could be repeated? Sure. It's been done in college. Why not do it K through 12? Um, the beauty uh, in indifference, uh, bringing or having a Finnish exchange student. And after you have a Finnish exchange student, uh, why not have one from Sweden? Uh, a culture attracts culture. Why not want to work for a company where you can go to a different location, being uh, immersed in the culture? culture, uh, and, and, make a difference in someone's lives. But David, someone told me the other, the other day that this is a leadership podcast. So I think maybe we, we ought to talk about leadership today. What do you think?
0: Yeah, that'd, that'd be great. Yeah. Just to, just to clarify, since we last talked, we, we did spin off our uh, digital division as participate. And so our, our traditional business is now known as participate learning. And uh, so we'll, we'll get that information to you, but it's participate learning.com now. So, uh, uh, the other organization is uh, pursuing a, a digital education strategy that's taken it in a different direction.
1: So uh, then, a lot has changed since we last spoke. Would you mind filling this in? What? What? Tell me what's changed in this past year?
0: Yeah. So last time we talked, I was uh, uh, sitting in Costa Rica, and um, it was lovely. Uh, took my family down there to to live. Effectively, the mission that we pursue as an organization. I wanted my uh, children to have a bilingual, bicultural, biliterate uh, educational experience and uh, felt like that was critical to their future to, um, you know, have that experience to speak Spanish, uh, not only to take it, but to actually speak it. And uh, as you may know, um, you know, being immersed in another culture and language is a, is a pathway to uh, proficiency. So we, we took that on as a family. Um, you know, one of the it it was kind of a big thing for my board to take on and for, for me to take on. So our, our COO, uh, Mark Otter went, uh, with the new company. Uh, so spun off, I went to Costa Rica, uh, for six months and we left, uh, the organization in the hands of, uh, you know, relatively new leaders. Um, and so, uh, you know, one one thing I learned about leadership is some, sometimes you you have to give people a chance to to uh, to learn. You got to give them opportunities to uh, uh, to fail, uh, opportunities then to succeed and learn from mistakes. And uh, I thought it was uh, really remarkable that my board was willing to uh, provide me that kind of time to rejuvenate, to refresh, to, to get ready for the next 20 years of my career after uh, already uh, uh, completing 25 years with the organization. So so I, I thought that was uh, really amazing uh, for them to take that on. And then um, you know, I'm really proud uh, of, of my own um, willingness to hand sort of the reins to relatively new leaders and give them uh, an opportunity to, to prove sort of their, their skills, learn, on the job, um, and and to come back and and then uh, welcome me back and, and to help me to reintegrate over the summer. And it turns out, you know, we we've just completed our, our finest year in 32 years of the organization's history, um, led by, you know, youth, um, youthful leaders that have so much potential and the ability, I think, to take us uh, to the next level uh, nationally. Uh, to the next level of impact on students, and and ultimately to help us create our next uh, 32 years.
1: Cool. Well, congratulations on that. That's that's pretty big, and I had no idea. I mean, the mark of a good leader for me is leaving an organization better than you found it. I think you maybe even talked about that in your last episode. You know, if if I were gone tomorrow, would our company be able to sustain today? And, you know, tell me about that process, though. I mean, was it uneasy leaving something where you've been a part of for 25 years? What were some of the challenges?
0: It, it was, uh, it was, I think, quite uneasy for my board. Um, they, uh, you know, they're quite accustomed to me. I've been here a while uh, love what we do. I'm passionate about it. Uh, you know, have, have a great network in, in our footprint. Um, and so to, uh, you know, to, to allow me and afford me the opportunity to, to depart, you know, for a a full six months and, and, you know, it's not like I wasn't available and, and, uh, you know, accessible, but, um, Uh, but we pretty much let the, uh, the, the group, uh, uh, youthful group behind me, uh, run with the show and and they proved that they could do a lot of great things, a lot of new things, a lot of innovation. Um, I think the lesson, the lesson I learned, um, as as maybe a more mature leader these days, um, it's kind of hard for me to believe, but anyway, um, is that you know they? You, you have to give space for people to learn and, and to make mistakes and fail fast and then learn fast and then move on to the next thing. And and we made so much progress so fast this year. And I, I think in some regards, it might well have been that I did leave.
1: Interesting. So I'm just trying to think here, like uh, the growing pains were uneasy. What about this new leadership group um, you know, strikes you the most in terms of their qualities of being a leader and and what they were able to bring to this company. You mentioned innovation was one. Uh, what are a couple other things that they've done differently that you never really expected that they could really pull out?
0: Data, data, data. They are uh, data okay. driven. Um, they are um, constantly uh, surveying. Uh, they're customer driven. Um, They're looking uh, for facts um, and acting on those facts. Uh, So there's very uh, little in this group that is is unproven. Um, They don't make decisions without um, fully understanding our customer's perspective um, and having uh, numbers to back it up. Uh, I think that's been a, a, a really significant change here. Not always welcome across the board, some of us, you know, still. Want to operate with our guts, but um, right. and sometimes sometimes you have to do that too. But uh, but data, you know, backed by gut, I think is is even more effective. And so they've they've really brought that to the table. Uh, their technology capacity is is you know it's the next generation is just so much more agile. Um, they have new ideas for management structure um, and and how we can create. Uh, you know, various communication vehicles. Um, they're so collaborative. I mean, one of the craziest things we did, uh, the day I left before I got on the plane, I told them I wanted them to run uh, a process through the time I was away until the time I got back to create our next uh, strategy plan. We were we were culminating uh, a, a five-year plan uh, just just last December, and I wanted a new one ready for this month, 2020. And so I put them in charge of running that uh, strategic uh, planning process. And I, the only caveat I said is every single staff person has to be given an opportunity to participate in this process. All the board members, all the shareholders must be included. Hmm. I passed it off to them to run this amazing collaborative process, which our next, uh, our next, actually we've got a two year plan because everybody knows five years is split far out. Um, but they did such a brilliant job of pulling in uh, all our staff, all our departments, um, all our shareholders, all our board members to be part of this process. And it was really, um, I think, for morale purposes, um, for earning their stripes, for earning credibility internally and externally. I think it was uh, a, a very good move. And one that I I don't know if I would have done that when I was younger. I, I guess I've reached a point where I'm. Um, comfortable enough in my own skin to, to give, give that uh, responsibility to them. Or maybe it's just really hard to do and I, was, <laughs> I wasn't ready to do it myself. But, um, but they really handled that uh, really uh, super well and I'm, I'm ex- extraordinarily um, excited about our future. I think we've got uh, bold plans that are achievable, that are meaningful and, and really could transform uh, the next generation of students to be global citizens.
1: That's, that's really cool. When I think of data, uh, a lot of people are scared with their own personal security and, and the objectiveness is what you like and, you know, to never go with your guys, what kind of what you alluded to. But the one thing about data is that as people, we are always changing. And you mentioned on the last podcast, the only constant is change. Uh, so how do you prepare for like a five year plan like that? Um, and when change happens, what are some strategies to adapt and maybe uh, go away, avert from the, the plan?
0: Well, you know, you, you can't wed yourself to a five-year plan uh, and, and expect it to to go through as written, right? Um, so, so there's constant uh, check-ins on progress, um, constant review of the, um, uh, the performance indicators, constant review of the, uh, objectives and the initiatives to, to ensure that they remain valid. Um, and so, so that's going to be again, um, customer feedback and, and understanding external market conditions and what might affect that. I mean, for us, it could be regulatory change. It could be a change in immigration policy. Um, there could be changes in, um, education budgets, things of that nature. And so, um, you constantly have to monitor those things. And we, we spend a lot of time and effort and frankly, money, um, you know, looking at, uh, government relations, looking at, um, you know, our, our, um, uh, our, our lobbying efforts to make sure that we're understanding policy that's coming down and, and that we never get surprised. Um, but, but you can't have a five-year strategy plan anymore, given the pace of technology uh, change, because, you know, obviously overnight, uh, something that you did a couple of years ago can be completely outdated. Um, we've had the, but we've had that throughout our 30 years. I mean, I remember when we first got our, I might have told you this before, we first got our plain paper fax machine in like the mid or late 90s. And I remember crying because I no longer had to receive applications from all over the world with that foil paper that you're probably too young to remember. Um, I remember we used to have to book airline tickets through travel agents and go pick them up. Um, you know, there's so many things that are, are changing and, and it's changing even faster now. So I would, I would say that any leader that's uh, building, building out a strategy plan to, um, to think uh, beyond two years is, is probably just kind of getting a general framework in mind, but that you're, you know by year, probably probably the second year, even third year, you're having to kind of adjust on the fly.
1: Dave, you've been mentioning a lot about this new group coming in being uh, very customer-centric. Uh, if you go to any impact conference, obviously part of the Real Years uh, Impact Awards, if you go to any impact conference, there's gonna be someone there that's going to be talking about how do you measure impact? So in terms of your customers and the impact that Participate Learning is trying to create, how do you measure that?
0: Yeah, so we, we, um, we have some, some very obvious measures that our customers like. Um, so every school district and every school is looking uh, for students to progress in uh, math, science, and reading. Um, okay. Fortunately for us, our, our programs, our global education programs have significant impact in those areas. And so we're typically able to report to customers that if you adopt our programs, your reading and math scores are going to go up significantly uh, with the uh, impacted student groups. Um, So that's one way. Um, A second way is one of our programs delivers uh, intense language study through what's called dual language immersion. Um, As you know, 99% of US citizens that take Language in our public schools never learned to speak that language. Um, that was from an article in the Atlantic in 2016 called America's Lacking Language Skills. And that article cites a 1% effectiveness rate. And, you know, probably you had the same experience, a lot of people listening three years of X language and I can't speak it. Um, why we continue to, to abide by that and, and think that's okay, I don't know. If, if that were our math outcomes, if that were our science outcomes, people would be up in arms, you know. Mm. Uh, we know what works, and that's an immersion methodology. And so our our one of our flagship programs is to de- deliver immersion programs in public schools. And what we see out of that program is not only increased data uh, outcomes on math, science, and reading, but we also see these kids are, are, have extraordinary proficiency in the language. Um, so they're actually learning to speak Spanish, or Mandarin, or French, as the case might be. And we can measure that, their scales uh, to measure proficiency. And um, for instance, after, after um, six months in Costa Rica, I was able to improve my level from uh, advanced low to, um, i was sorry, not advanced low, from uh, intermediate low to intermediate high in six months of being sort of on the ground. Um, The students in our programs should be uh, advancing to a a category of advanced uh, low proficiency uh, within these immersion programs. By comparison, a program that would be a traditional sort of high school program, kids are never going to get out of the beginning levels. Um, so, so that data is really valuable to schools and districts, and, and notably to parents that want their kids to learn a language.
1: That's an interesting thought. People would be up in arms uh, if this were math or English or science, and that's so true.
0: Well, and it's five billion. It's a five billion dollar
1: industry. It's a five billion dollar industry?
0: Yeah, I mean, as a country. We spend five billion dollars trying to teach languages with a one percent effectiveness rate.
1: I mean, I. I I'm naive to say that as well because I took French for seven years and I couldn't speak. I can't speak a lick of French. I mean, I'd, have, I'd probably have to go to France and figure it out. But no, it's but, it, it's pretty bad. I mean, that's,
0: that's um, you know that's uh, kind of crazy, isn't it? Because uh, I mean, your story, my story, that is that is the U.S. story on language learning
1: yeah yeah exactly so for maybe for business owners who have uh you know sons or daughters in school right now what if they want you know if their kids want to be in business or they want to have a, a career what language would you recommend that they learn
0: um I mean, and, and it depends where you are in the U.S. I mean, in, in, in North Carolina, it's clear that Spanish is a, a, a real need um, and has real opportunities attached to it. I, I would think that's true in most states. Um, there are places where I believe Mandarin is quite valued. Um, and then I think on the West Coast, the language uh, uh, potential could be much more varied um, and, and possibly in big cities as well. Um, but uh, you know there, there are a lot of sayings out there that if you can speak Mandarin, uh, Spanish, and English, you can communicate to probably 95% of the world. Wow. Um, you could replace Spanish with French and say the same things in Mandarin, French, and English. So Mandarin plus English plus one other language gets you a vast uh, majority of the world.
1: Uh, David, you mentioned uh, immigration policy. Uh, how have new immigration policies affected uh, your organization? How have they affected them? Uh, and then as well as when people reach the 12th grade, your students are in fr- uh, from foreign countries, they reach the 12th grade. Uh, at least I know we've had some friends from Guatemala I had a friend from Guatemala that needed to get a job within 90 days to stay in the country. Uh, how has immigration policy affected Participate's learnings, uh, and what are some of the fears that a lot of the students have in terms of you know, getting deported back to their country?
0: Yeah, um, so we, we function within the cultural exchange umbrella of the U.S. Department of State, and so um, from, a, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, things have been the same uh, as they've always been. Uh, some of our teachers have had some some not so pleasant experiences of being asked why they are here, um, and, and you know, or, or even told that they should go home. Uh, very few, though, um, relatively speaking, um, we've been a little surprised given the climate that we haven't seen more of that, and maybe a relief. Um, and and so I think in general, our teachers have had very positive experiences. They they are. You know very high level educators they're bilingual uh typically quite sophisticated so i think they um you know they they have very winning personalities and and uh and are highly valued in in these programs because they play a specific role around uh, linguistic expertise or cultural uh, exchange expertise um so i i think uh you know we've been fortunate to to not uh, uh yet to, to, to have not seen any negative impact. Uh, but you know obviously we're we're keeping an eye on it
1: and occasionally wary. Uh, David, uh, I think on our first podcast, uh, not correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you told me that uh, your parents were in education and that I don't know if you started participate learning with them, but they had some involvement in participate learning. is that correct?
0: The concept of, of what used to be called uh, Visiting International Faculty, which became right. Participate and then okay. Participate Learning, it's complicated. Um, visiting International Faculty was now sort of an outcropping of, uh, of uh, cultural exchange program for professors at uh, Elon University in North Carolina, where my father was president, and so they were... Um, they were eager to host international professors as part of kind of the student experience, and and the idea to bring international teachers K twelve really uh, stemmed from that
1: experience. Okay, got it. And the reason I asked that is because our next edition coming out is families who lead, and uh, a big theme of that is generational leadership uh, and that being passed down. Now you mentioned that you know this this process of of uh, leaving uh, you know the helm of the organization for six months was difficult. Uh, did you stress at all having the the family values in the company and how is the company able to uh sustain those those core values
0: well i mean the company really is um it is our family uh, we we believe in uh that, that um, global citizenship is as simple as, as knowing someone from another place appreciating their culture uh, being able to step in their shoes and understand what their lives are like. Uh, it's all about empathy, all about appreciation and, and curiosity about the world. And, and it, it reflects my family's dedication to um, seeking travel experiences around the world, seeking to learn other languages, seeking to study regions of the world. Um, I grew up, uh, we, my, my siblings and I grew up with a map wallpaper all over our rooms that was all of us were surrounded by maps like all day long. And um, you know, we memorized capitals. When we took trips, we were, you know, we were competing to see who could name, you know, all the capitals of the world and and had games around geography and culture and language. So this is kind of just who we are as a family. And and there's no doubt that this has been a family effort. you know, my brother was heavily involved. My sister was at one point the director of recruitment for for us. My mother was our original accountant. Uh, the ideas came from my father's work at Elon, and he's been chair of our board for uh, 30 years now. So, so we when we go on holidays, we have to have a jar out to uh, uh, to prevent us from talking about uh, about the organization nonstop because my mother goes crazy. We'll just because we can easily get uh, hung up to talking about, you know, nothing other than participate learning. So um, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, my, my family's uh, very lucky, very fortunate, and we believe that the opportunities we have had uh, are deserved by all students, and that's what we're trying to do is extend it uh, much more broadly to students that may never leave the country.
1: Uh, when you were, uh, you know, taking this on 25 years ago, uh, was it, was it ever challenging with your parents to just, you can't have a normal conversation since it's always around the business? Uh, you know, how are the, how did your relationship change with them? Kind of tell our audience about uh, your experience growing up uh, well with, with your parents heavily involved.
0: Well, uh, you know, after, after the initial couple of years, my, you know, my brother and I really kind of took on most of the work. Um, eventually my brother went on to do some other things. And so I had about a seven year period, uh, uh on my, on my own with, uh, some, some other new colleagues that I brought on, uh, before I was able to convince him to come back in the, in the late nineties. Um, but, um, yeah, they, they pretty much, you know, once we kind of got it up and running as a family project and, and, uh, and then things kind of seemed to emerge and take off, uh, they pretty much let me run with it. Uh, uh, When my brother came back, we developed uh, uh, the organization together for a number of years until 2005 when, when he departed again. So since then uh, I've been CEO, they they both all my family remain on the board and involved, but um, you know, I think as as long as I don't drive the thing into the ground, they seem pretty happy. Um, And so, so far, I've I've been able to to, um, bring on people that uh, have similar beliefs, have similar passions. Um, Global education is kind of one of these things where uh, people get really into it. And when you love it, you truly love it. And so finding people that want to dedicate their careers to impacting students and giving them these experiences, you know, they're not a dime a dozen, but they're, But, you know, when you find them and when you find them, it's uh, our culture and our mission and our passion for global education keeps people around for a while.
1: Well, it's nice to read me. And the reason I asked that is because I found a lot of the guests we've had in the show, especially these purpose driven companies. Uh, either they, There's two routes like you, you you found your purpose. You're surrounded by maps all day. It's in the family organization. You're, you know, you're lucky to have that. Obviously, you've, you've, you've said that, but you're lucky to have that purpose that you've been able to follow throughout your career. And you've been really, really talented at it whereas others on the show will come on and they were in some other organization, whether it's investment banking uh, or finance or just some uh, career that they made a lot of money, but they wanted to have this this change. Uh, What do you hope for your children?
0: Well, you know, it's early, they're 14 and 12 and still uh, uh, developing, I think, their interests. Um, I I hope that uh, they'll appreciate you know, the work we do here and, and I hope that they'll want to be glo- what we call global citizens as well and really um, striving to make the world a better place to solve global challenges and, and that may be for them. But uh, more importantly, respecting um, people from all nations and people of different backgrounds. Um, you know, I think that that's uh, that's critical for us to to one solve many of the challenges we face across the the planet and saving the planet, and then ultimately to have peace. You know, we really need um, people to have a skill set that allows them to interact effectively, um, uh, despite um, uh, the backgrounds of, of whoever it is they're they're working with or whoever it is they're um, with in general. So, you know, I, I hope that they'll they'll feel like they are citizens of the world and and that they have a role to play in, um, in,
1: um, helping us all to, uh, succeed. David, you mentioned, uh, everyone that participates a part of the family. How is that family culture in your organization? Would you say different from maybe a standard corporation? And is there an example that maybe comes to your mind?
0: You know, I've never worked anywhere else, so I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure I can guess, um, based on what I'm told here. Um, you know, we really stress family. So uh, we have, you know, we'll have a Thanksgiving dinner for staff. We'll have, um, you know, we'll we'll uh, we'll have regular opportunities to interact. Uh, we bring all our families together regularly. We celebrate our mission. We um, um, we celebrate accomplishments, uh, both personal and professional. Um, we strive to be very, very family friendly with our policies. Whether that's um, you know uh, bereavement policies or taking care of an elderly parent, or you know different types of insurance, um, you know that you might not necessarily see in a standard organization. Um, you know, we, uh, we've we been named uh, locally as a, as a family-friendly organization for a number of years. And I, I think that uh, you may be aware, we're also a, a B Corp Best for the World organization. And a lot of what they look at is how how we um, strive to ensure our employees are well cared for. You know, what I, what I believe is that there's a group of people um, in the world that want to use their careers to do good and you know a lot of a lot of what we see in, in using business for a force as a force for good also applies to people that want to use their careers as a force for good and while that doesn't mean they'll take a, a significantly lower salary it may be that they're looking for kind of the whole experience the whole compensation of um, the kinds of benefits they can get, the kind of work-life balance they can get, um, what's that going to mean for their family. And I, I think we do a, a really good job with that and that it's uh, meant quite high retention over the years and I think quite high satisfaction. Um, and, you know, at a time of 3.8% unemployment here in North Carolina, we, we really aren't having any difficulty um, uh, recruiting high levels of talent. Um, I'm finding that a lot of people want to work here, um, and that that talent level uh, as high as it's ever been.
1: High talent, high retention, good mark of a good leadership. Uh, Dave, the last question for you today is what is your definition of a real leader?
0: Well, you know, I, I gave a, uh, uh, you had a whole list last time. Yeah, you're long go. yeah I gave a long answer last time. <laughs> you know, this time I, I, I think thinking about organizations um, and the role they can play um, in, in society. I, I think. I think for leaders to be thinking of how their organizations can align to. Um, helping to resolve global challenges and issues and we talk about people being global citizens but I think that organizations and leaders can also be global citizens and uh, the sustainable development goals of the United Nations gives us all kind of a a working list or a to-do list of what it is we need to accomplish as humans and I think Businesses, uh, organizations are well positioned um to drive some of that work, if not all of that. And 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 it, it just can't be left to NGOs and nonprofits. Um, you know, altruistic for-profits need to play a role in solving the world's challenges. And and that doesn't mean that you cannot be successful financially so you can you can do well through doing good and and I think leaders that can focus on on the big picture and, and the whole the, the the whole impact of their organization beyond just the profit line right so what is the impact you have on your on your employees what is the impact you have on the environment um, is is your work truly making the world a better place are you impacting um, the next generation, what opportunities are you giving your team to become leaders, um, not just in title, but in empowerment? How, how are they empowered to make a, a change in the world for the better? Um, I, think, I think leaders that um, can, can see, see maybe that bigger picture uh, have an
1: opportunity to emerge as I think the real leaders uh, going forward. Well, David, we appreciate you coming on the show today. Appreciate organizations and more organizations similar to yours that are uh, you know, harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. Uh, <clears throat> for David Young, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there. Use your organization as a private servant to sustain the people, planet, and profit. People, it's a force for good. And always, never forget, keep it real. Thanks, David.
0: Thank
1: you, Kevin.